obviously women were working hard in homes, but when we saw a lot of labor-saving devices introduced into the homes, we find women uh, with lots more free time, and consequently they're thinking, I'm not doing anything productive. I should be doing something beside just sitting around watching the dishwasher work. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to The Cauldron Pool Show. Today, I am joined by pastor, by author, writer, uh, podcaster as well, and I believe he's also an illustrator, which is very interesting, um, and that is C.R. Wiley. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks, I'm honored to be with you. Now, um, obviously, I'm very familiar with your works. I've watched many of the lectures you've done. I particularly enjoyed the one at the university that you did um, where they tried to send you packing. You showed uh, a lot of grace and humility with all of that. But not only that, I've really appreciated your books. Um, in particular, you've written one recently called The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Um, and I think that all of your books and all your lectures and the things that you speak about are so important for the Christian living today in the world that we are living in. And so I really wanted to sort of go through some of the things uh, and themes and, and subjects that you bring up in not just that book I mentioned, but a couple of your lectures as well. But before we dive in, um, I was hoping you might be able to give a short introduction for yourself uh, for the audience who are tuning in today. Yeah, well, I'm glad to. Um, as you noted, I'm a pastor and a writer. Um, I've done a number of things in the course of my life. I was a college professor for a while, taught uh, philosophy, and I've been a real estate investor and have done that since the early 1990s, been involved in uh, construction. I was a home improvement contractor for a while and actually worked my way through my first graduate program as a framer and kind of a deck builder with a bunch of other guys. So um, I guess I've got kind of a blue collar sensibility Um I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right between Harvard and MIT for about a decade. Uh, I've been married for about 30 plus years, got three grown kids, two granddaughters. And uh, well, I guess that's pretty much it. Um, written some books. Some very do you good want me books, to go I into, might add. Do you want me to go into anything in particular, maybe that you thought maybe it'd be good for folks to know about? And, you know, I could talk about my childhood or anything you, you want me to talk about. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy for you to sort of talk about whatever you're comfortable with. But, um, you know, I'm really sort of interested, I guess, in what sort of motivated you and sort of led you to feeling, I'm not sure, maybe a need to sort of write the books that you have. Um, uh, I found some really interesting ones. You did one based on, you know, character in Tolkien's stories, which was incredibly fascinating. I'm happy for you if you'd like to sort of discuss some of the titles of your book and maybe what motivated you to sort of write about them at the time. Well, uh, I think uh, a theme that runs through a lot of the things I write is the household. And I come from a, kind of an odd background. My father was an academic and uh, my mother was into the arts world, uh, the arts scene. And um, this was in the late 60s, early 70s, kind of the me generation. And, uh, you know, one of the things that characterized the me generation is that everybody was looking for themselves and it, they, they uh, had the, this deep conviction that in order to find yourself, you had to abandon all of your responsibilities. So you just kind of like went out and like, you know, uh, you know, uh, turned your back and your family and that kind of thing. And so that that was an age with just a, a lot of crazy things going on like that. Uh, but that was my own kind of story as a kid. 
um, my for a Scientologist, and it's another kind of in, uh, weird to to it all. But uh, about the time I was eleven years old, I was on my own. Even before that, really, and was awarded the state. For, and because of those, um, I sense in my childhood and teenage years, I thought to a, a household uh, with my wife that I better do a little thinking about it. <laughs> Didn't necessarily have any, you know, um, firsthand experience watching a father on, in, in action on a day-to-day -day basis. So because I have a background uh, in uh, Western culture and uh, Western thought, that sent me on a quest to understand how the household was understood in antiquity and really right up until just about 150 years ago. So there are a lot of things that I draw on that would have been kind of common sense uh, once upon a time and now seem like brand new things <laughs> because mm -hmm. we've gotten so far away from those things. How do you think, so you said the last 150 years is sort of when you think, when you see the big changes and I guess the drifting from what would usually be seen as common sense. Why do you think it's happened so fast after so many years of it being one way? What do you think was the catalyst of, I guess, the trajectory? And I guess the next question would be, what was it that caused us to, to shift our way of thinking about the household? Well, there were a, kind of a, a range of things that amounted to a perfect storm, you could say. There were developments intellectually in our culture in philosophy, uh, in political thought, and so forth. But there were also things that were going on in our economic life that really incentivized breaking up households. And I'm thinking in particular the Industrial Revolution. Now, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not like against the uh, things that we enjoy because of, you know, the, the, the ways we go about making things today. There's certainly things that we have today that we wouldn't have had any other way you know, antibiotics and air conditioning and automobiles and all that kind of stuff. And I like that stuff and I'd like to keep all that stuff. But in order for, particularly in the early phases of industrialization, in order for the work to get done, people had to go to where the work was being done. And it, it meant breaking up households, which up, up until just like I said, about 150 years ago, every household was understood to be a productive economy. It was a really a partnership uh, between a man and a woman to create a productive enterprise that included uh, being fruitful in every way. Uh, obviously, there's children, uh, but that was just part of the story. So the, one of the reasons why we have joint tenancy, where we, where we say that husbands and wives own things in common, is because they're one flesh. They're, uh, they've become a, a single uh entity or uh, through the institution of marriage and because they share all things in common it's a common wealth it's a common work it's a common outlook common future common children common property they have all these things in common and they work together uh to to like i noted be fruitful and and see their see their work prosper and with the industrial revolution initially everybody left home um this is one of the things that is sort of the untold story of uh, the history of feminism. The very first phase, the women and the children, uh, along with the husbands and the and the fathers, went into the factories. 
And so we have, you know, these images of children uh, in these horrific environments surrounded by these monstrous machines. And we see, you know, for example, in uh, West Virginia in, in, in the United States, not far from where I used to live in Western Pennsylvania, the boys, uh, when they got to be about eight years old, would go into the mines with their fathers. And we have pictures, photographs of the boys, you know, and they were a big help uh, getting into small spaces that the grown men couldn't get into. And they were um, brought into the mines because they had worked with their fathers before their fathers were miners. They worked on the farms with their fathers. Same thing with daughters and the mothers. That's why the mothers would take small children with them into the, the big um, textile mills and stuff like that. And it was initially a, a movement, sort of a progressive cause to get women back home. That was the, the thing uh, that we've lost sight of is initially it was, we need to get the women and the children out of here. <laughs> mm. So, you know, get them back home uh, so that uh, they can keep the home fires burning and, you know, uh, keep the, the households, uh, you know, in order and so forth and make sure that the kids are taken care of. But the fathers never went back. And that was a huge problem because what it, what that meant is that children were separated from their fathers, wives were separated from their husbands for eight, 10, 12 hours a day. Come home, they were exhausted. Now, before a lot of hard work on the farm or in the smithy or whatever, but father out back, you know, right, you know, in that house, uh, you were involving him with the work. Oftentimes, wives uh were involved with the the paperwork or the the you know the you know sending out the bills or, or taking care of the facets of the business that would free up their husbands to do the work itself so it was a, a, a joint enterprise um in every area of life but once the industrial revolution occurred and we had this separation what we end up with is a lot of the um sort of problems that we see today eventually what occurred is uh the workplace was the place where people were praying for their you know contribution to the larger community and this created a kind of envious uh sort of outlook on the part of some women who wanted to be part of where the action is and that was part of the story for women wanting to get into the workforce. Because uh, what occurred uh, in the process is uh, the workplace was now someplace else and the home was reduced to kind of a recreation center. It was a place where you went at the end of the day to just sort of um, get away from work, kind of rest and recuperate so you could go back to work. Now, obviously women were working hard in homes, but when we saw a lot of labor-saving devices introduced into the homes. We find women uh, with lots more free time. And consequently, they're thinking, I, I'm not doing anything productive. I should be doing something beside just sitting around watching the dishwasher work or whatever, yeah. whatever you know. And so uh, that was uh, kind of the practical side of the feminist movement. So there's something in that that's perfectly understandable Everybody wants to contribute. Everybody wants to be productive. Everybody wants to feel like they're they're doing something important. And now uh, everything that's considered important is done someplace else where everybody is watching television and, and eating 
uh, you know, microwave dinners and stuff. <laughs> that's so that that's what's that's what's that's what's occurred. But anyway, uh, that the the print the the kind of the principal thing when it came to the practical side of of the transition was the industrial revolution. Hmm. So it seems, you know, from from all of that, it seems like what started off as maybe good intentions, trying to, I guess, uh, pursue uh, technologies that would advance the human race and advance the household, advance families, uh, make living uh, somewhat easier and more comfortable things. And I think this, we see this often with a lot of things. It starts off with really good intentions, but then it always ends somewhere very separate to where it begun. Um, and I guess, you know, the industrial revolution, obviously from, from what you said, it, it kind of started that way and ended somewhere different. And, you know, it sounds like it was almost unintentional, but I wanted to ask you as well, do you think that there was deliberate sabotage in that movement as well? Do you think that there were people or, um, I'm not sure how else to describe it, but do you think that there was deliberate intention even back then 150 years ago to almost break down the household because 2022 you look at it today everything seems to deliberately be uh, against the family and against households do you think that was also present back then as well oh yeah yeah i mean there have always been people who felt that the responsibilities and the duties of the household economy um were stifling they wanted to slough them off, you know, they, and we can look back and see examples of that in the 19th century and even earlier. But there was also a kind of incentive to break up the household. So this is another uh, under, I think, um, I guess, told uh, episode or uh, episode of the Industrial Revolution. Many of the supporters of feminist movement in terms of getting women into the workforce alongside big business owners. There was a profit motive that uh, came into play. So a lot of, a lot of business owners obviously knew that women are capable of, uh, you know, very productive act, you know, work and wanted to get them into the workplace so that the businesses that they owned could be more profitable. And this is something that we have a lot of uh, evidence for in the United States uh, in terms of what was going on in the early 20th century. But then there's just, um, there are, I think, spiritual dynamics that are in play that have to do with the fact that it's through households that we we come to have an understanding, not only of uh, who we are, but who uh, we're accountable to, and ultimately what it's all for. So when we think about scripture and how salvation is portrayed in scripture and how uh, we understand the, the nature of the of the church most of the language is drawn from the household account we think about the church you know as our mother or, and we think of god as our father and it's because of the language of scripture that we think in those terms uh, Christ is the only begotten son of god it's again household language so if we want to undermine the biblical con, you know, sort of the met the message of script of scripture with regard to uh, the nature of salvation. Um, if you can compromise the integrity of the household, that helps uh, to do that. Mm. 
Absolutely. And, you know, the book that you wrote about the household and the war for the cosmos, like you go through a, a lot of these sorts of ideas and themes and, you know, you sort of discuss um, particularly work and, and things and what that means for the home. Um, and I found it really interesting because while I agree with the things that you've said, I, I hadn't ever seen it articulated sort of the way that you had. And I don't think it's something that is necessarily really discussed very often. I think we're so, we're, we're very, I guess you could say, uh, normalized to the idea of work always just being out of the home. And, you know, like you mentioned, fathers get up first thing in the morning um, and they're gone by, you know, breakfast and they're not home till dinner or maybe even after dinner. Um, and, you know, the more that I sort of look at it, the more it actually makes me sad because, you know, you only need to look at the statistics of fatherless homes to sort of realize just how important the role of a father is. I think it's something like over 70% of all youth suicides come from a fatherless home. I think it's something like over 70% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes, over 85% of all substance abuse in youths come from fatherless homes and their statistics from the US Department of Justice. Um, you know, they're there for everybody to see and it just highlights how important the role of a father is. And, you know, I guess you could look at fatherless homes in many different ways, like what makes a, a home a fatherless home? Is it literally just the complete absence of a father or is it the absence um, of a father for, you know, 80% of the time, uh, which is interesting. But um, I wanted to sort of get your thoughts on on uh, I guess what the biblical view of a household is um, and how you think as Christians we can achieve that in a world where it seems like very difficult to sort of attain those things. Yeah, well, I think all your observations about the absence of fathers are really important to keep in mind. That's the a dimension to this that the sociologists have given us plenty of data to, to, to justify um, many of the things that we have convictions about. With regard to uh, a biblical understanding of a household, um, there are a couple of things that I, I tend to point to. One is the very word economy. So uh, the word economy uh, literally means house law. It's a, a, a Greek compound word, uh, oikos nomos, oikos for house and nomos for, uh, for law. And what you have in a household is an authority structure that's uh, oriented toward productive activity. Uh, couple that with the uh, passages in Ephesians and Colossians that no one wants to read, the household codes, you get a sense of what the, the sort of the uh, sort of the idea. Um, one of the reasons why no one reads the household codes is because no one knows what households are for. So if you were to say go to work uh, for a new employer and the employer were to, was to say to you, well, I'm not really in charge. You just do what you want to do around here. If you want to just kind of play video games while you're on your, your workstation, <laughs> no problem with me. Or if you had an, the sort of the attitude or the disposition that uh, kind of reflected a defiance and an unwillingness to, to follow directions by, uh, from your employer, you would be fired. Uh, we don't think in those terms with regard to households because we don't really know what they're for. But if we had an understanding, you know, uh, of what they uh, were intended to accomplish, uh, then all of the strictures associate with uh, old fashioned household and with um, 
you know, what we see in the household codes in Ephesians and Colossians. So it makes sense because in, the, in that light, we, we realize, oh, okay, uh, how intended to enrich the members of those households. And what does that mean? Well, it literally meant working together uh, to produce uh, the things that they needed for a livelihood could be uh, uh, the easy way to, to, to visualize it. And in, a, in an environment like that, everybody from the time they walk is working. <laughs> now, it doesn't mean it's all work and no play, uh, but it does mean that even little children, three years old, are going out and gathering eggs from the, the hen house and things like that. They're, they're engaged in the, 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 and then because they're engaged in the productive labors uh, of the household, they have a sense of their own importance in the household, the fact that they contribute to its welfare, and they actually learn some skills. They, they uh, uh, are doing things that help them to develop a sense of who they are and, and, and uh, confidence and uh, so forth. So uh, households, biblically understood, serve the interest of those who are members or res reside in the household in households, but also in a, in a larger sense and in, in the ultimate sense, households are ordered to the glory of God. It's, it's through this common labor that households glorify God. And this is how we can see uh, or understand what Paul is getting at when he describes the household and assigns various roles to, to the members, and he ties in each case uh, the task of that person to some theological point. You know, so a, a father and a husband uh, needs to think of themselves as uh, performing their work or doing their uh, performing the tasks that a father or a husband uh, is relied on as unto the Lord, right? But also, in a sense, reflecting the very work of the Lord. As, as it pertains to the church. And likewise, wives have a role, children have roles, and it all works. And when it works in the way that it should, in an atmosphere of order, ordered love, then you've got a beautiful thing. I often think that we're almost trapped in a toxic environment because we're almost put somewhere where it feels impossible to remove ourselves. I often uh, speak about motherhood and I often speak about, you know, being uh, the woman of the home and taking care of your children and homeschooling and doing these things. And I'm often confronted with a lot of people who say, I actually would like to do that, but I can't. And a lot of people say to me, we need the double income to survive. My husband needs to work and I need to work. Therefore, I can't raise the children and school them, they have to go to school. There's just no way of getting around it. We'll lose our home, we'll lose our livelihood, we'll be struck into poverty. They're things that I'm often confronted with. And I wanted to sort of ask you, what's something, do you think that that's a lie, that we can't get out of those situations? Or do you think we're genuinely in a really difficult situation, um, culturally speaking, with the way we've set work up in the household, and we almost need reformation at that level before it can, sort of translate practically or like how would myself and anyone else sort of confronted with those ideas um, and, and conversations, how would we sort of respond to people who come at us like with those sorts of questions? I think uh, it's a both and scenario. I think that we do see things uh, as sort of working uh, against us in larger culture. This is something that is very different than 
our ancestors had to deal with. Our ancestors dealt with is um, the fact is sort of a reality in which if they didn't do these things, they'd die. <laughs> yeah. now, now, so there, there were no multinationals. There were no, you know, um, bank, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, institute, you know, inst institutions with regard to financing and so forth that um, uh, price things out of reach. So, you know, th that that's true. Um, but at the same time, there are things that we can do right now, no matter where we are, that move us in a, in, in a direction that we, we want to move in uh, with regard to these things. So I would I would say that it's uh, in many cases not going to happen overnight, but you can make progress and you can make set some goals. And, it, and the progress is going to include a range of things. One of those things is lowering your standard of living <laughs> so that you can live within your means. And that can be a, uh, actually something that is uh, um, very rewarding and, um, and, and very uh, feasible. It can be, it's feasible. It can be done. Yeah. Um, and there are a range of resources uh, out there with regard to how to, how to go about that. Um, but I also think that there's a, a sense in which we can write from this, from um, you know, the first phase of these things, do small things that move us in the right direction. Anything from gardening to, you know, approaching the education of our children differently. You mentioned homeschooling. I'm a big supporter of that. Um, so when we think about a household economy, historically, it was understood to kind of have two parts. There was the subsistence economy, which is the things that a household does to, to take care of itself. Um, everything from child care to elder care to growing your own vegetables, that kind of stuff. Then the uh, there there was the stuff that you did for the market, some the stuff that you 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 made to sell. And in the world that we live in today, I think you're going to have to do both. You're going to have to have some kind of hybrid. And if if it's feasible, um, I encourage people to to do both. But you can always start with the subsistence side of things. Just what can we do? Uh, very often, you know, couples find themselves in a situation where, you know, say both are working and, you know, one half to two thirds of the income of the woman is going to pay for childcare, <laughs> you know, at the, you know, mm. you know, and, and so, you know, you really should, if that's the case, rethink how you've ordered your life and say, can we find a way to live without that additional third and, you know, bring the children home to be with mom and mm -hmm. uh, let her be with them. And that's going to be a very rich, you know, enriching and rewarding experience uh, when it's done well. Um, so any thoughts about how to. How mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really challenging because yeah, it does feel like it's the first time in our lives that well in modern history i guess that we have been sort of had forces fighting against the home um like you mentioned yeah. even even part of the industrial Revolu revolution was to better the home so you know it, it really has been this shift and it's it's really challenging for particularly young families to try and navigate through these waters these murky waters and trying to figure it out and let alone you know christian households as well who are trying to um, raise their children to the glory of God through their 
through their home and their household. So, you know, it, it is tricky. There isn't a, I don't think there is a one shoe fits all other than scripture. I think scripture has all the answers that we need. Um, how that translate practically to our lives might be different for every household, but I've always appreciated um, your view of the home. And I like the fact that, you know, um, the home is where the good work should be done for men and for women and even for children. I love that you speak about that because it is important for children to feel useful. I think that's so important in their development as well, which is things that, you know, you sort of mentioned. Um, what do you think um, a, a biblical view of children working in the home should be? Because a lot of people might hear that and go, you shouldn't make children work. But how would you view children in the home working and um, you know, what does the Bible sort of say about those things? Well, I think a couple of things come to mind right away. One is, is that I've done it. <laughs> My kids are grown and, and uh, they seem to be doing okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it didn't damage them too bad. But um, what I think it does is it, in, it instills a sense of personal responsibility early in life. They can see that what they do makes a difference and it really does help. And that's really important in the terms of the formation of a child's self-concept. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but I do know that kids who don't do anything useful feel worth less. <laughs> mm -hmm. And kids who do things that are useful feel like they've got value. So um, if you can get your kids involved, that's great. So in, in our case, uh, my wife taught piano for years from home. So the kids, uh, when they were being homeschooled by their mom, would see her engaged in this uh, work. And, she, and they were often uh, put to work uh, in terms of helping her with her work. So, for example, uh, recitals are a big deal uh, for, for my wife. So she has 30 to 40 students at any given time. And recital for her with all kind of do to make it to pull it off so the kids they also uh students so they had too but uh here's i also uh used to work different ways uh, i've been a state investor as i mentioned and at one time i had 18 and properties in three states and always pulling the kids into different things sometimes i'd pay them some it just kind of depended on the nature of the thing that we were engaged in. But in every case, the kids knew that what they were uh, engaged in, in terms of working with the family enterpri enterprise, was enriching to them. And occasionally I would say things to them like, you know, this apartment building that we're working on is someday going to pay for your college. And it did. <laughs> mm -hmm. So when I say, they worked with me along alongside me in these different things, uh, these different uh, endeavors, uh, they did get something out of it. And maybe uh, occasionally, you know, a little spending money, but uh, in terms of the long-term uh, outlook, uh, things that help them with their education, but also things that they'll inherit someday. In fact, I talk to my kids about that sometime. Which which apartment building do you want? That kind of, that kind of yeah. stuff. They've kind of told me what they what their interests are, where they which ones they're interested mm -hmm. in. I have to die first, so it's going to be a while. But anyway, <laughs> that's kind of kind of part of the part of the picture. But I think getting the kids involved is is good for them, and it's good for the household. And uh, anyway, uh, I guess that that mm -hmm. says it. If there's anything else you want me to talk about related to that, I'm happy to. But that those are things that come to mind. Yeah. 
No, I, I agree. I think that, um, you know, you can see it like I've seen it myself with kids when they feel useful, when they feel like they've done something, they get like this glow about them and, and, and a joy in, in the way that they speak. And that's at such a young age. Um, and it's amazing. I think um, the long term effects of, of having that type of relationship with your children in your home, I think is going to help them to grow up to be you know, um, people who are incredibly beneficial to society and to then their own homes when they create their own homes and they cleave to their spouse um, and create a new sort of family and a new household. So, yeah, I, I'm all for putting the kids to work, um, you know, doing yeah. whatever they can to make them feel useful and valuable to the family. For sure. Yeah, so my, 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 like I said, my children are all grown and I actually continue to work with them. So my oldest son, he's a, an audio engineer and works in the music industry in Nashville. And we're on the, we're, we're interacting almost every day. Uh, he's the guy that produces the podcast that I'm, I'm a part of. And he's, in fact, he and his wife and my granddaughter are flying in uh, tomorrow. We're doing a big conference and he's going to do all this stuff with that. And it's actually going to be on Canon Plus. And second son, uh, he manages real estate back in Connecticut. So I'm on the West Coast now, but we still have property back in on the East Coast. And so my second son and his wife and our other granddaughter live there. And he you know, takes care of all that stuff. Uh, so and I'm interacting with him on a weekly basis. So it, the, the family uh, enterprises give us an excuse to talk to each other, <laughs> interact with each other on an ongoing basis. And uh, the, they're, they're both very gifted. My, my daughter as well. They all work with their hands. They're all, they're all intellectuals at the same time. So like my second son, he's a welder, works for United Steel in Hartford. And he takes like Dostoevsky with him to work. Yeah. reason on his lunch break you know so he's they're, they're bright and they're good with their hands and I, that's a that's a, a combination I think is really really great to see yeah definitely it is I think we need more people who are bright who are good with their hands in society I think you know it's interesting you, you sort of mentioned like a few questions ago about technologies how microwavable dinners and watching a dishwasher kind of limited I guess um our purpose in the home and you know I often think that as nice as it is to put clothes in a washing machine and press a button and it do the work for you we have had a lot of discontentment with that and you, you would think why is there a lot of discontentment when things are getting better and I think what it is is we have lacked our purpose we've lacked I guess a desire to do things with our hands that goes for men and for women and I think this is why you look at like the 1950s and that sort of era as women being miserable and I, I think that they, they probably were because we've gone from a time when we have been good with our hands or we've had to labor and it's a labor of love for things, you know, in our home to just being, I guess, uh, regressed back to something that just pushes a button. And, you know, I think that um, as good as technology is, we, we have somewhat lost something as well with that, the double-edged sword type thing. And so it is, I think it, you know, going back to the home, working from the home, having the economy in the home, you do have to be a little bit more hands-on, which is sanctifying in a way. Um, and yeah, yeah. And, re and related to this, women particularly uh, had a, a lot of social interaction around work. You know, women would do things together that were very tedious and not very fun, <laughs> but mm. they would do them with with other women. So the yeah. women would would be together and they'd be uh, interacting a lot. This still happens, of course, in some parts of the world, 
Um, but we have to find ways to recover the best of what we lost without necessarily um, getting crazy about it and bringing back the worst parts of it too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if we can have like a win-win situation, that's the thing to strive for. So if we can have, uh, you know, productive activities, women are getting together and enjoying social, uh, you know, in the social interactions that result from that, something we should be striving for. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the dimension of uh, this whole thing is the kind of the myth. We can figure out how to retain the best of the of the of the things that we've been able to curve through the industrial revolution same time recovering uh, the things we lost that's mm. that's what i think we should be striving for yeah i think so as well i think that's that's the answer that's the solution because you know something that i've felt really lacking in in my life like personally is that community that you mentioned with women around each other. I feel very much alone in in my life. I've gone from uh, 12 years of law enforcement as a detective, very intense sort of job where I did feel very useful in that role. I was locking up pedophiles. I was going into prisons and locking and getting confessions from murderers. I was doing all these things. And then I've gone from that to feeling when I resigned that what am I... What do I do? Uh, what, where am I? And I had no one around me. No, there were no other women in my life who were at that stage of life as me, um, where they were done with work. All you wanted was to be a wife and a mother, and there was just no one around me. And um, you know, my mother worked full time, so I didn't have her at you know around me. I had nobody, and it was a very lonely feeling. It was a bit sad, and I think. Um, you know, all of these things are, are working against against us. And, you know, I would love to have a community um, and women around each other. And I think, you know, Doug Wilson and I see like his daughters and the community they're formed over oh, in yeah. their church. And I look at that and my heart like grieves for something like that over here, you know, and I'm at a stage now where I live on a farm. I run a farm. There's over 500 cattle here, over oh, like wow. 30 chickens, um, and I'm very active with my hands now. It's very different work to policing, but I'm doing that, and it's the first time since I've resigned from the police where I feel genuinely content with oh, with great. life and with the home life, and with how. And it's really nice. And it was just going back to simple things like collecting eggs from the chicken and cleaning out their chicken coop. Like, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. I didn't need a badge to do it, but it was, it's such a joy just to do these things. And, you know, it gets you sort of thinking about, you know, how feminism, and I don't even think it's modern feminism. I don't, I don't believe in this third wave sort of, I think feminism from the beginning has been really rotten with its intentions. And I think that feminism as a whole has led to some of the most discontent women in all of history. And you have to ask why we have more rights than ever before. We're, we're actually bri- bridging on not just having equality, but special privilege now. Yet we're so miserable. And why is that? Um, and, you know, you speak a lot about the toxic matriarchy. And I was hoping you might be able to sort of explain that and maybe how that links into sort of some of the things I've just sort of shared with you now as well. Well, yeah, I'm glad to. Of course, that was a title for a talk I gave at the University of Idaho. And um, the uh, I won't kick you I, out. Yeah, <laughs> well, I enjoyed it immensely. It was uh, I, I 
I'm I'm one of these strange guys that kind of uh, enjoys a little bit of uh, I guess verbal wrestling. <laughs> so it, it was an enjoyable event, even with all of the craziness. But what I was really driving at with that is something we've alluded to a little bit here, and and that is um, kind of the infantilization of our society. We rely on authorities uh, and experts to basically make all of our decisions for us. Um, our schooling system is essentially in, intended to create um, interchangeable, uh, you know, cogs in vast, uh, you know, uh, business enterprises or government bureaucracies. And maybe in a certain sense, that makes sense from a GDP standpoint, and I'm not even sure that's right. But what it all does is it, is it, is it uh, creates a sense of helplessness and dependency. And um, again, you know, we could say, well, there are some good motives. Um, the intentions are fine. But the old saying, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions is, I think, applicable here. We have to think we have to think about what are the outcomes been. Uh, we have uh, who are despond, uh, unhappy, uh, as you noted. And I and I do think that there's a kind of paradox that is kind of inescapable many of the more well think about it this way when, you, when we think about our ancestors uh i knew people who fought in world war ii for example that was a horrific thing to go through but they look back on their experiences as some of the best days of their lives <laughs> there's something about the challenge of trying to do something very very difficult uh that requires uh teamwork you know, comradeship, um, mm -hmm. sacrifice that brings out the best in people. And I think that in our quest for ease, comfort for other people taking care of us, basically, they, you know, there's like a, in the United States, there's a, there's a bus company called Greyhound and their, their slogan used to be, give the driving to us. That we say, well, yeah, yeah, just take over life. Uh, federal government and tell me what to do to put on my face tell me where and tell me when to come outside <laughs> when not to come outside take care of everything for me uh, relieve me of the burden like manage my own life that's what i was getting at with matrix the sense that we have created a who never lets children up you know she, she just controls their lives from cradle and no one ever gets to risk no one ever gets to fail you know in, for example in the united states we have this joke you know trophies for everybody you know it's as though as a child you know we don't want any child to the disappointment of, of of actually losing so like when i was a when i was uh when my kids were small, were small we, we you know you've got a you know we've got baseball and uh, so we had a thing called t-ball and uh, it was very much a kind of mother-oriented kind of environment, even though the fathers were the ones who were doing all the coaching. But the idea was we don't keep score. That was one of the things that we, you know, that that was like a rule in the league and we're not supposed to keep score. Well, anyway, I had a I had a team made up of a bunch of boys that were kind of blue collar and background and they were really athletic. And my son was on the team and they would kill everybody uh, at T-ball. Uh, the scores would be like 30 to nothing. And, and they would, 
asked, you know, what was the score? And we said, keeping score. But then after a few games, they started keeping score. <laughs> and it was because they they knew kind of, um, I guess, in their bones that it matters. But, you know, another matters is knowing how to deal with disappointment, how to deal with loss, how to deal with not being on top. And mm. I think that the, 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 the joy that we in, we go through achievement and winning is only as threat of actually losing is. So if we take away the prospect that fail by changing the standards so that no one ever fails, I think that we're actually uh, doing harm that ostensibly we're supposed to be taken care of. So that's what I was getting at with toxic matriarchy. Now, you know, what we can find ourselves doing in a situation like I is we can fail to all appreciate those things that matriarchs do that are positive or things that women provide in a home that are replaceable, that women only can do. And there are certain things that only men are capable of doing. And consequently, in this sort of environment where now nobody's allowed to fail, you're not even allowed to fail at being a man or being a woman. Um, and these things have been drained of their meaning. And now it just has sort of been re these, these uh, God-given um, you know, ways to be human, to be human, male and female, have been divested of their values. So now that they're they're just kind of trite, and if you want to be the opposite sex, uh, sure, we'll all play along with you and and, mm -hmm. and call you by the pronouns that you you think uh, would be good to be used in your case and stuff like that. So I've kind of rambled a little bit. Hope uh, I've gotten to something uh, of the thing that you wanted me to get to. Yeah, I I think that you know the idea of being in an 11th place winner you know you get those <laughs> ribbons like 11th right, right. place winners is you know and kids right. bring them home from school and i think we're seeing the the rotten fruits of that type of uh you know upbringing and raising of our kids because look at all the adults that are having tantrums on the streets yeah. when they don't get their way you have people gluing themselves to sidewalks and you know like all, all these ridiculous things and it's almost like you know, they're the 11th place winners in society. Like that's kind of, I guess, what that sort of toxic uh, culture is sort of festered into um, our adolescent children um, and young adults. And so, yeah, I think you're right. There is definitely good in disappointment and I guess it builds character yeah. and, um, you know, helps you sort of navigate the bigger things in life. Um, especially as you get older and you do have a family and a, and a home that you're trying to sort of um, manage yourself. And I wanted to sort of talk, you, you know, you speak about, um, you, you have another book, you know, I've spoken a little bit about um, some ideas that you spoke about in your book about the cosmos and things, um, but you wrote another book about man of the house, uh, which was also incre incredibly good. And I think all men should probably get a copy of this book and, and you know, all families. It's, it's, it's something really important um, for Christians in particular to understand. But I'd love to get your thoughts on what the man's role is in a family um, and with his work. And I guess uh, how as Christians um, we can try 
to um, help our men um, in society to, to become those uh, roles for us. Yeah, I think it is something that I noted a little while back that the, that a household as a productive enterprise and that whenever you have a productive enterprise need to have people feel certain certain for the, the the enterprise to to do what it's intended to do so with regard to households um you need to have someone who overleads and governs you don't need that then what are you in charge of the remote control what we're having for dinner you know that kind of thing um but if you have uh, something uh, in you know in mind that is vicious, then you need authority and it needs to be exercised properly. So a, a father uh, fills that role in a household. One of the things we earlier you brought up, and I think it's a very, very good point, is that it seems as though the, way the economy is uh, is structured that uh, we're almost sort of forced into a dual income situation uh, in households. But one of the books that really was a fascinating read for me years ago was entitled The Millionaire Next Door. And it was essentially a sociological analysis of self-made millionaires. And uh, it was uh, uh, written by a couple of uh, social scientists in the United States. Uh, I think the names were Stanley and Danko, the two, two authors. But what they noted is that in these households, um, about 97% of self millionaires in the United States are male, but they also happen to be men with lots of kids. And that was one of the things that they had assumed that to become a millionaire, you needed to be uh, a person with you know, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a, a ability to, to, to earn money, but also your expenses low and kids are, are expensive. <laughs> and so the idea that, you know, if you if you want to get ahead, you kids, but what they discovered is the exact opposite is the case. When a man has a number of kids and he's responsible for making certain that things that they need, he 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 spends a lot about it <laughs> and creative. And uh, in the process of getting creative and feeling the weight of the responsibility, uh, it, it has a way of forcing eyes to the occasion. And very often, uh, millionaires were guys who had nice to the occasion. And um, a number of men in the uh, categorized this way in each case. Um, yeah, they're thrill to the, to the work and desire to excel. But, uh, the thing that really drives these guys and drives the guys that I know is they care about their lives and their children and they create, uh, wealth that, they feel like they need to be able to provide for them. So another thing that this does is it tends to push a lot of these guys into becoming uh, entrepreneurs. Um, so a guy who has a lot of ability and gets creative very often realizes, hey, one of the, one of the ways to, to do well in this world is to start your own business. Uh, generally speaking, um, employees don't do as well as owners. <laughs> So it forces guys to sort of uh, move in that. Do this in a way that is in harmony with the larger agenda of a house um, and the household's interests. 
you bring in, you know, the wife, bring in the kids, and you end up with something that really is a cool thing to see, have everybody working together uh, productively, and sometimes uh, even getting wealthy as they do it. So I, 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 you know, getting back to the, you know, what do we want a father and a husband to do? At a practical level, on a daily basis, of course, a father needs to visit it in the home. He needs to uh, uh, the the sort of the, the dynamics of the household, and then needs to be uh, as an example of you know productive enterprise and work, but also works and he also needs to work with his wife and work with his kids as the household is seeking to further its uh, interests and, and achieve its goals. So I hope that's helpful. Uh, kind of elaborate yeah. a little bit off the top of my head. So yeah, you speak about the role of a father um, and and the importance of a man of a home as well. Um, how would you sort of describe the role of a woman? Because often we are told, we're sold the lie that the role of a, a woman is um, is lower or lesser than the role of a man. Um, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about that and also like what you view the biblical role of a woman in the home is as well and how she fits into that biblical role of, of a man. Yeah, I think that women obviously brings uh, something to a household that only women can bring. Uh, I, of course, there are things that uh, we know that are obvious. Uh, you know, women uh, bear children and uh, are absolutely indispensable, particularly uh, with the raising of children in the early years. So there, there's that, but there are, are features to a godly woman's character and deportment that leaven and beautify a household and are indispensable for truly, um, I guess, uh, worthwhile household life. I know that in my case, without my wife, I'd be uh, very bad, bad, badly off. You know, I think that, you know, I would survive, but maybe, uh, you know, thrive would not, would not be the case, <laughs> you know? So, and hopefully she feels the same way uh, in regards to, you know, my role in her life, but it's a, it's a partnership. Uh, we sometimes get fixated uh, on the flow chart, uh, you know, the flow chart uh, has to do with, you know, who's in charge and who's doing what and that kind of thing. But I think that the thing that we have to keep in mind is that it's a mutually enriching arrangement, that both parties are uh, enriching the other party, but also building up uh, the wealth of their home in a range of ways. Now, when I say wealth, I imagine many people immediately their minds go to dollars and cents or whatever the currency is in the country that they live in. That's not, you know, that's part of the story, but that's not the full story. I think when we think about, uh, I've been in homes that are uh, owned by very wealthy people, but uh, that's the only thing that you can characterize as wealth in their homes. You know, they're poor in every other respect. And I've been in homes that are monetarily just getting by, but are very rich in, in many important respects. And I think uh, as a husband and wife work together, uh, the, the love and the mutual regard uh, and, the, and the care that they give to one another 
uh, is a beautiful thing to see. And then when they can they can turn outward and practice hospitality and pour them, themselves into the lives of their children, again, this, uh, this richness uh, is extended and expands and uh, is a blessing to anyone who gets to be a part of it or enjoy the benefits of it. So when it comes to, you know, the relationship between a husband and a wife, there are things that each sex brings to the other that God has intended for that sex to give to the other. So these are not self-serving um, sort of attributes. They're, they're, they're virtues that are intended to be a blessing. And, and I think that one of the things we've lost our ability to do is to think about men and women in a way that focuses in or sort of, uh, gets our attention or draws our attention to the, the features of the male and the, you know, the man and the woman that, uh, are irreplaceable and, uh, can, uh, not be, um, sort of, you know, sort of, uh, substituted for, um, and, and, and once, once that's, this is something our ancestors did, you know, did quite well. Uh, there was a, a sense in which our ancestors have been maligned and libeled, and we don't actually go back and read the things that they said or, or, or thought with regard to many of these matters. We've got a story that we've been given, a narrative that paints them in the worst possible light, um, and we accept that and don't, and don't question it. But if you were to go back, for example, uh, one of the one of the one of the writers who influenced my thinking uh, is Xenophon from the fifth century BC, who was a student of Socrates. He wrote a book called Economicon, which was about household management in the in the in the ancient world, and it was kind of like a bestseller. But if you read it uh, and you and you and you hear what he has to say about his wife, you would not. Uh, you would not be able to say he treated her poorly. You would not be able to say he treated her like a slave. You would say you would say he actually had a high regard for her, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and thought she was absolutely essential to the welfare of their home. Um, and there are many places in the in the dialogue and where where that's evident. But that's just one example. I think there are many others. Yeah, I haven't actually read that, but I, I I'm interested now to sort of get my hands on that um and and see what you know people back then were saying about the household in comparison and just sort of compare it to where we are today i guess um but you know sort of we're sort of coming up on that hour but i wanted to sort of finish on the the idea of the title of your book the household and the war for the cosmos a lot of people are probably wondering what what does he mean by cosmos and you know you did a a little sit down with doug wilson that i watched and you sort of elaborated on what that actually means um and i'm not going to attempt to uh butcher it i'll let you if you don't mind in your own words uh sort of tell us what the title means and why that's sort of significant to the themes in this particular book that you wrote well the word cosmos uh brings to mind the you know outer space and science fiction stuff, you know, today. Uh, but that's not what would have come to mind in antiquity. So it's a, it's a, it's a word that uh, is Greek, uh, and it's a word that is sometimes translated in the New Testament as world, but it, it just meant order. So a cosmos is, a, is an ordered whole. And the cosmos, according to uh, the, our ancestors, was a place that was ordered 
and it was ordered by if you were a pagan and believed in multiple deities it was ordered by the gods uh, as a christian uh, you would say it was ordered by god and it was ordered through uh, jesus christ the son of god and toward uh, to to serve certain ends that glorify god but the thing that both pagans and christians had in common was this this sense that the cosmos was this ordered whole and households were miniature or you could say microcosms miniatures of the cosmos and that was how people thought about things so it was sort of like uh, nesting dolls. If you've ever seen Russian nesting dolls, you know, you get a big doll, you mm -hmm. take it in, you know, take the top off. There's another little doll inside and you take that mm -hmm. there's another little doll and you just keep going till you get the tiny little doll. <laughs> <laughs> but that was kind of the way they thought about the cosmos. A, a household in some sense was a reflection of this larger order. Now we've lost that. We think of the cosmos as just some kind of vast, empty, cold machine. And that's one of the reasons why we can't find any meaning uh, just in the very sort of common things that uh, make a household what it is. Uh, but in the past, everybody would have seen that in some sense, a father represents a very large reality, a very large truth. A mother represents a very you know, significant reality and a very large truth as well. And these roles that they that they perform in the in in their households are not just their own private affair; uh, they are in some sense connected to this much bigger story. Now, how does that play into the title of my book? Well, in the book I wrote, I demonstrate or I try to demonstrate that this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in the book of Ephesians, where he describes the household as something that gives us a little window into the end of the world. Now, when we think about, uh, you know, the Christian understanding of the end of the world, we're, we're actually talking about something very, very good. Uh, you know, where we see uh, a household at the very largest level, God's house in which the church uh, and uh, is the bride, is the bride and Christ is the groom and the way the story ends is with their marriage and that's something that we're looking forward to but that means that our marriages today in some sense are supposed to point toward that and in some way reflect that that means that each party has a pretty big role to play <laughs> and it's not just about what what's in it for me uh now that's important you know we, we obviously need people to find joy and contentment in their home lives but i think part of the reason why we find so little of that is because of the fact that people can't see what it's all for they they just think it's just for them so they get wrapped up in themselves and lose sight of the big picture and the point i tried to make in the story is if we order our households uh, to reflect this grand order then our households should be joy-filled in the same way that we see the joy of the saints and the presence of their savior at the end of all things. So that's, that's my point. Mm. Yeah. I, I did like how you, how you did that. And I, I had a little laugh when um, you and Doug were talking about, you know, cosmos, the order of things, cosmetics and things, and oh, yeah, right, people's, right. people's faces right. and things like that. <laughs> it was very good. Right. Um, but right, yeah, right. 
you, you've written another, uh, you know, well, a number of other books as well. I'd love to sort of get into all of them here with you, but, you know, we're sort of short for time, but where can people get a copy of not only the, the book that we just mentioned, but all your other copies of your books? Um, you know, if you're a Tolkien fan, there's one in there that you should definitely get. Um, but where can people go if they want to get a copy of your books? Yeah, well, of course, Amazon is everywhere and, and you can get them there or you can go to Canon Press, uh, which is, um, I think, just spelled with, you know, C-A-N-O-N, canonpress.com. I think that's the, the, uh, the, the website, but you can buy, you can buy them there. Um, you can get them through your local bookstore. Um, people can order them, you know, that way. So if you just uh, want to see the things I've written, you can go to my author website, crwiley.com, and stuff, you know, is there. Uh, there are some reviews that I've posted there of the books I've written and interviews that have been conducted, that I've been part of and so forth. So um, I guess that's, that's you know, the, the best I can do in terms of giving you direction. I do know that you can get them in Australia because people have written me from Australia and said that they've, you know, been able to get them. So they're, they're there. Yes. I do know my, uh, there's a bookshop over here called Reformers Bookshop. Um, and the, I, I love them because um, they actually read the books before they put it on their shelves. They don't just oh, get, nice. you know, and, um, you know, they're all sort of reform theology and all from that. So you can pretty much walk in there and pick up a book and know that you're not going to go home with something heretical right. or something, right, you know, right. that you probably don't want to be giving to your kids to read. So they're a really right. great bookstore. And I do know that they stock your books there. So I'll be right. sure to put um, the link uh, here for people who are listening in who might want to go purchase one. But have you got anything on the horizon in terms of new books that you're wanting to write? Oh, and, yeah. and if so, um, what, what are the sort of things that you want to sort of talk about in the future and in, in your books? Yeah, I've, I'm actually working on four books right now. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I, it's funny. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I've, I've got friends, you know, Doug's a friend. I've got other friends who are who are writers and uh, some of them are much more prolific than I am. I remember one time I was talking to Doug. I said, Doug, man, you crank them out. How many books you got work, you know, you're working on at any one time? He said five. <laughs> so I don't know how he structures that. But but for me, uh, I've got four I'm working on. So I've, I've got a young adult fantasy series. And the second book in that series is uh, nearing completion. I'm working on a children's picture book that I'm illustrating uh, called Daisy. It's a story that I made up for my daughter when she was small. And it's one of those things you make up a story and say, I think that might have some potential. And it stuck with me and I'm been working on that uh i'm working on a commentary on the book of acts uh that's a long-term project um yeah. but the book that i'm working on right now that hopefully will be out uh in the spring is entitled uh how to defeat communism in your spare time and okay. uh, it's about about some of the things we've been talking about but essentially um dealing with totalitarian uh sort of uh government overreach hmm. probably very uh helpful moving forward i think you know historically speaking like if, if you look at history um you know the government 
don't get better with time. They tend to get worse and take yeah, more power yeah. and they don't really give back that power. You kind of have to take it. And, you know, yeah. history does, it shows what can kind of happen. So I think as Christians, that book is probably going to be particularly helpful as we navigate through these uncharted waters sort of going forward. So I'm really excited about those. Um, and yeah, it's, it's also fascinating to see that you are an illustrator as well, just tack that on there as well as uh, all the other many giftings that God has blessed you with. But um, I do want to thank you very much for coming on today with me um, and sort of giving me this time. I really appreciate it. And I've really appreciated your work over the years, especially being in Australia and um, somewhat, I guess, feeling in the minority in way of thinking. So thank you very much. Well, you're welcome, Evelyn. It's been great to be with you. Thanks for having me on the show. 